We continue our series entitled Being a Person of Purpose, which is basically now a character study of the Old Testament prophet Elisha and the people that he encountered. And the guy we're going to look at this morning was named Naaman. And the title of today's study is You Can't Buy a Miracle. Now, this series has been about living life with an anticipation of the miraculous, anticipating that it won't just be ordinary, but God will use us uh, to do the extraordinary. But this guy, Naaman, was voted in his high school class least likely to receive a miracle in his life. Uh, why wouldn't you expect Naaman to get a miracle? There are four reasons I've listed down there. Number one, Naaman was an idol worshiper. It says in verse one, now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram, what is today the nation of Syria. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. We believe, historians believe that the battle they're referring to is a huge upset win where Naaman led Syria uh, to a defeat of the Assyrians, which were the major power in the world at that time. He was a valiant soldier. Let's go to our map that we've been looking at in the divided kingdom. At this time, Israel has got the civil war situation going on. The northern part is Israel. The southern part is Judah. Israel had a war at the north going on with Syria. Now, at this particular point in our story, there's a ceasefire, but there are still raiding bands that are going on from Syria against Israel. And so it says here that he was a valiant soldier a great warrior, a great commander in these battles. He was kind of the Dwight D. Eisenhower of his time. When I was growing up as a kid, there were two heroes in my home growing up. One was Billy Graham and one was Dwight Eisenhower. My dad was a World War II veteran. It served under his commander-in-chief or his commander, commanding general, uh, Dwight Eisenhower. I was born when Eisenhower was president. And so he was a major hero in our household growing up. And so Naaman was kind of the Dwight Eisenhower for Syria at this time. But he was an idol worshiper of Ramon, who was a relative of Baal. He was the storm god, the god of thunder. And so Naaman was an idol worshiper, so you wouldn't expect him to get a miracle from God. But Naaman had a problem that only God could solve. This is a guy that was used to being in control. He was a winner. Everything he touched turned to gold. He won in every arena of his life. But he finally ran into something he couldn't control. Finally ran into something where he couldn't win. The end of verse 1 says, but he had leprosy. Now, I don't know what it is in your life. But in our life, there's always something. And maybe everything's going well in different areas of our life, but there's always at least one area where we feel out of control. My friend Dane Acker likes to say, unless you have a problem, you can't have a miracle. Only way you can have a miracle is if you got a problem. Or a conversion, I, I would add. You know, we tend to come to Christ if we have a problem, unless we come and when we're children, and we've been talking about the fact that in our children's ministries are so essential, and youth ministries and those things are so important, and camp fund. Uh, Pastor Greg talked last Sunday about our camp fund. If you look on page five, you'll see where we're giving to the camp fund so that our kids can go to camp, because so many lives are changed at camp. And so, but if we don't come to Christ when we're children, when we're young, it tends to take a crisis. If we don't do it when a child, we do it when we face a crisis. And so something happens when life is all together as an adult. When everything's going on fine, we have no financial troubles, no health issues, no relational problems, we don't feel the need for God. But when we encounter something we can't handle, we go, the love of our life walks out the door, or we go, our heart's broken through divorce, or maybe we lose our job, or we have a financial reversal, or maybe it is a health problem like it was for Naaman. 
When you have a problem, that's when God can get our attention. And if we don't have a problem, we can't have a miracle, and sometimes we can't have a conversion because we feel no need for God. Now, the second reason why he shouldn't get a miracle is he was an enemy of Israel. It says, now bands of raiders had gone out and done terrible things. You know, even 3,000 years ago, the raiders and their fans are just the ones that do all this stuff, you know. It says, bands of raiders doing bad stuff, you know. I'm just kidding. Raider fans, don't beat me up in the parking lot after the service is over. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife, this little girl, as Pastor Tomiko was just talking about human trafficking. She was a victim of human trafficking. What kind of man, like Naaman, goes to another country, steals a little girl from her parents, and takes her back to a different country, away from home, away from her mom and dad, and forces her? It says served, but basically she was a slave to his wife. This past week, we've been asking a question as Americans. What kind of person? would take a backpack filled with explosives and set it down next to an eight-year-old boy and walk away. What kind of person would do that? Well, we ask the same thing about Naaman. Why is he going to get a miracle? This guy is, is, an, is a participant in human trafficking. How can God give him a miracle? But here's where the whole story turns. There was an Israelite who loved her enemy. This little girl is the heroine of this story. And it tells us that you're never too young to be a person of purpose. If you're young here today, you're never too young to be a person of purpose. This is something we as parents, um, a bunch of our pastors, we went down to a conference called Catalyst this last week. And Andy Stanley is just one of my favorite speakers, a pastor uh, from uh, Atlanta, Georgia area. And he was talking about his dad, Charles Stanley, who's another one of my favorite pastors. And, And he was talking about how from the earliest age, his dad would just tell him, God has a plan for your life. God has a purpose for you. God has a, has a you got to figure out God's will. He said his greatest fear growing up is that he would somehow miss God's will. He would somehow miss God's plan for his life. He would miss God's purpose for his life. And you know, parents and grandparents, one of the most important things we can impress upon our children and our grandchildren is God has a plan for your life. He has a purpose. Put all your energy into figuring out God's will and plan and purpose for your life. You're never too young to be a person of purpose. It says in verse three, she said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. We don't even know her name, but she had tremendous faith and she had what I like to call counterintuitive love. That's what changes the world. When you love, when it is not the natural human response to love, that's counterintuitive love, and that's what changed the world. That's what characterized the ministry of Jesus. The thing that made Jesus unusual is that he loved people that normally somebody in his situation would not love. He loved the Samaritan woman. He loved the tax collector. He, he loved his enemy, people that were different than him racially, ethnically, from different backgrounds, uh, religiously. He loved when it didn't make sense to love counterintuitive love. As followers of Jesus, that's how we change the world through counterintuitive love. That's what changes the equation. That's what rocks the boat. That's what draws people like a magnet to Jesus. And this little girl's love. I mean, if I were that little girl, I would love to see Naaman rot away from his leprosy. This man took her from her mom and dad, took her from her home country, forces her to be a slave to his wife in a foreign country. Let him rot. 
Let, let Naaman rot away before her eyes from his leprosy. And yet there was one little Israelite girl who had faith and who loved her enemy, and that's what the whole story hinges on here. Third reason why he shouldn't get a miracle is he thought he could buy it. It says in verse 4, Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. That's about almost $2 million worth of stuff. But you've heard the old adage, if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. And if you had $2 million, would you pay $2 million to get healthy again? That's what you are spending right now, isn't it? Isn't it about $2 million to get healthy again? They laughed harder at 8.30 than they do at 9.45. And 11.11, they'll go, what? I don't know, what? You know, my aspirin doesn't cost me that much. You know, so, yeah, he, he got $2 million. If I had $2 million and I had leprosy, I would spend $2 million to get well from leprosy. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter, I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now, interesting little sidebar. What's this guy running around with leprosy with other people? What's he socializing for? Isn't he supposed to be quarantined? Ah, this is very interesting. Now, some Bible scholars uh, believe this word, Hebrew word translated leprosy could talk about a variety of skin diseases. So maybe this wasn't an, a contagious skin disease. But other Bible scholars believe, no, the reason he's running around is because he's Syrian. And they didn't know. Nobody knew until about 200 years ago about the contagious nature of some diseases. Now, God let the Israelites know 3,500 years ago, 3,300 years before medicine and science discovered it to be so. And I've shared about this. We did a series called, uh, How, How Did Moses Know That? A study of the book of Leviticus. And it's one of those thousand different ways we know the Bible is a supernatural book because of the unbelievable medical information that's contained in the book of Leviticus 3,300 years before scientists and people in medicine discovered it to be the case. And so the reason he's running around is because he's Syrian and they didn't know. If he was Israelite, they would have quarantined him because they knew, but he didn't know. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes, a sign of grief and great agitation, and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. He thought this was a setup as an excuse to go to war once again with Israel. But Elisha reaches out to Naaman anyway. Next page of your study outline. Uh, verse eight. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. I love that, 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 that line. He'll know there's a prophet in Israel. You see, the king only saw a problem. Elisha saw an opportunity for a miracle and for God to be glorified. Fourth reason why he shouldn't have gotten a miracle. Naaman was a proud and angry man. It says in verse 9, so Naaman went with his horses and chariots, his $2 million, his entourage, his military entourage, his servants, his horses and chariots, and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house. I love that. Elisha's got some little dink prophet house, you know, that he's living in there. And this huge entourage, I mean, stretch limo, 10 hump camel comes up and pulls up in front of his house. Now here, here, this doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but culturally, this is a big deal. 
Elisha sent a messenger to say to him. He did not come out personally. He sent his servant to tell him the message. Big insult at that time. Particularly Naaman was a big deal. And he was used to being treated like a big deal. And so to have the servant come out instead of Elisha himself, big insult to his pride. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you'll be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God with a Morgan Freeman voice and wave his hand over the spot and thunder would come and smells and bells and lightning and music in the skies and cure me of my leprosy. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about religion. If Elisha had asked him to go and crawl on his knees to the top of Mount Sinai, he would have done it. If he'd asked him to stretch out in the desert for five days without water, he would have done it. If he'd asked him to follow a code of conduct or follow a group of ceremonial rituals and regulations and rules and religious rigmarole, he would have done it. That satisfies our pride. We want it to be hard. We want it to be difficult because we're important people. And if we're going to get right with God, we've got to do it in a difficult, challenging way because we're good enough and we're going to earn our way into his presence. And he simply says, go do this simple step of faith to symbolize that it's all about God and not about you and you'll be healed. And he's offended by that. He gets a little bit racist, a little bit nationalistic now. He says, are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? Now, he's got a point here, because these really are nicer rivers. Uh, the Abana is called the Barada today. Uh, the rivers are, are just gorgeous in Syria. The Greeks referred to them as the Golden River. It's this beautiful, rushing stream of fresh water. Now, in some places, the Jordan is nice, but in much of the places, it looks like this. There it is right there. You know, basically, it looks like an irrigation canal. You expect to see that, you know, from in Bakersfield as you drive through. You look out in the field, and there, there it is. You know, that's what you're going to see. And now, not in all places. There are nice places. Uh, Dr. Carl Tony and Pastor Lisa are going to take you to a nicer place in the Jordan to get baptized on your trip there. So I just wanted to tell you that. You're all like, I want my money back. Are you kidding me? We're going to get baptized in that, you know? And there's a nice place. I've been there. When I, um, Pastor Dennis and I led a trip to Israel. I baptized everybody in our group, including Kimberly. That was very special. And then I had to have somebody baptize me. So I had my um, uh, my cousin, who's an attorney, who's a lawyer, he baptized me. So I've been covered both ways, baby. I've been baptized once by a pastor, once by a lawyer. And so I, I'm like, <laughs> I got to cover legally and spiritually. So there are nice places. There are wide places in the Jordan where, of course, the miracle happened when, it was, when the Israelites went across into the promised land. But much of it looks like this. And so he's offended. He's a proud man, a angry man. He's worshiping idols. He's an enemy of Israel. He thinks he can buy his way into God's miracle for his life. Can't think of hardly of a less deserving person of a miracle than anybody in all the Old Testament. Let me give you a New Testament example, however, of somebody who didn't deserve a miracle. Malchus, servant of the high priest, coming to arrest Jesus to have him crucified. He didn't deserve a miracle, but he got one. Naaman doesn't deserve a miracle, but he's going to get one. We don't deserve a miracle, and yet we still get 
God's salvation and his other good work within our lives. One of the reasons I included this clip here is just a reminder in the week we've just come through that the one we follow, Jesus, taught us that God's purposes in the world are not accomplished at the point of a sword or with bombs in a backpack, but they're accomplished by counterintuitive love. Love to those that don't deserve it. Grace to those that don't deserve it. That's how the world is changed. All God's family said, amen. Now here's how it all is going to turn. Naaman was willing to humble himself. It says in verse 13 that the servants went to him. Now one good trait about him is he listens to his servants. Listen to this little girl servant. He listens to these servants. They go to him and say, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. His whole entourage is there on the shore. The main thing a military man needs is the respect of his troops. And as he goes down once, nothing. Twice, nothing. Three times, nothing. All of a sudden, a little titter goes through the crowd. He begins to hear them laugh behind his back. And he needs their respect in order to lead them. And he's just thinking, this is stupid. Number four, nothing. Number five, nothing. I feel like an idiot. Number six, nothing. This isn't doing any good. Seventh time, he goes down. As the man of God had told him, that's the key. It was the obedience, not the action. It was the obedience to God's word. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Now, that's not the most important miracle. I don't mean to minimize it, but really, just think about it. it, it we, we put such emphasis on physical healings and miracles, and they're wonderful and they're important, and I'm going to give you an avenue for that in just a moment. Real important. But think about it. All it did was, what, buy them another 10 or 15 years? Where you say, yeah, but they were better years. Yeah, but age catches up with you eventually, doesn't it? Anybody want to say amen to that? Again, it was louder at 830. <laughs> It'll be non-existent at 11-11. I mean, he bought another 10 or 15 years, great. A happier 5 or 10 years, okay. But here's by far the more important miracle. Naaman became a follower of God. And he's in heaven today because of this event. Leprosy's gone, that's fine. But eternity, that's the thing that counts. D.L. Moody writes, he, Naaman, lost his temper. Then he lost his pride. Then he lost his leprosy. That is generally the order in which proud, rebellious sinners are converted. Verse 15, then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. Why? Because there were shysters back then, like there are today, using religion to rip off people of their money, and he didn't want anything to do with that. No appearance of that. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. Now here comes the end of the story. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, my master was too easy on Naaman. I mean, we could use $2 million. I mean, that would be great in the building fund. 
that would like deal with a lot of debt. That two million, are you crazy, Elisha? So in verse 27, he hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running toward him, now this is fabulous. I've read this story probably 30 times through the years and I never noticed this. He got down from the chariot to meet him. This guy's gotten saved. His heart changed. Remember, he was on his chariot and was offended that Elisha didn't come out to him, but merely sent his servant. Now his heart's been changed, so he comes down from his chariot, jumps down to greet the servant of Elisha. This man's heart's been changed. He got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right, he asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. And then he makes up a cockamamie story about a couple of seminary students that needed scholarships. And uh, skipping to verse 25, uh, when he went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere. Like a teenager, you know, where you been? Nowhere. But Elisha said to him, was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female slaves? Now, everything's okay in that list except the male and female slaves. That's wrong. But everything else are okay things. Money, clothes, olive groves, vineyards, flocks, herds. But it just shouldn't be the priority of a person of purpose. A person of purpose doesn't live for those things. They, they see them as means to an end, not in an end in and of itself. We're not supposed to live for those things, he said. This is not the time for that. We've got bigger fish to fry. We've got a bigger change in the world, a bigger purpose to fulfill. Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Leprosy is a real disease, but it's also a symbol for sin in the Scripture So Gehazi went from his presence and his skin was leprous. It became as white as snow. He switched places. Naaman, the pagan, the idol worshiper, far from God, gets right with God. Gehazi, who had every opportunity for a religious upbringing, he was the servant to one of the greatest prophets of all time. He ends up not right with God. It's just like Jesus and the Pharisees and the so-called sinners. The Pharisees who were religiously close to God end up not being right with God. And the prostitutes and the tax collectors and and the people far from God, the Samaritans, uh, the, the Romans in some cases, end up close to God. It's like the story Jesus told of two people go to the temple. And the Pharisee says, God, I just am so grateful. I'm not like lousy people like this, this tax collector over here. He goes home not right with God, Jesus said. And the tax collector gets on his knees and says, oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that person goes home right with God. And so uh, the roles are reversed. Why? Uh, Because as Jesus said in Luke 4, 27, he's preaching to a Jewish crowd here, and they did not like this very much. This is how you irritate a congregation. Jesus said there were many in Israel. They thought they were all that just because of where they were born and because of their lineage. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. How did he get that miracle? Asked for it, humbled himself, did what God told him to do. My friend Dane Acker says, no one deserves a miracle, but God loves to give them anyway. Nobody deserves grace, but God loves to extend it anyway. 
Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker both had churches in London in the 1800s. Spurgeon's on this side and Parker's on the other side. On one occasion, Parker commented on the poor condition of children admitted to Spurgeon's orphanage. He, He wasn't criticizing the orphanage. As a matter of fact, he was complimenting it by saying, boy, these children are in such desperate straits when they come to his orphanage, and his heart just broke for that. It was reported to Spurgeon, however, that Parker had criticized the orphanage itself. Now, if Spurgeon had gone to Pomona First Baptist Church, he would have known our guideline for get the information before you get ticked off. And you know how we've always said, if you ever get irritated by something the church does or a fellow Christian does uh, or says, um, go get more information. And 90% of the time, it clears it up. And you say, oh, now I get it. And an additional 9% of the time, you may disagree with what was done or said, but you still agree with the motive behind it. And only about 1% of the time do you genuinely need to be ticked off. But Spurgeon did not follow that. He simply heard this report, took it at face value, and he blasted Parker the next week from his pulpit. The attack was printed in the newspapers and became the talk of the town. People will flock to Parker's church the next Sunday to hear his rebuttal. I understand that Dr. Spurgeon is not in his pulpit today, and this is the Sunday they use to take an offering for the orphanage. I suggest we take a love offering here instead. The crowd was delighted. The ushers had to empty the collection plates three times. Later that week, there was a knock at Parker's study, and it was Spurgeon. You know, Parker, you have practiced grace on me. You have given me not what I deserved. You have given me what I needed. And that's what grace is. Not what we deserve, but what we needed. Malchus got not what he deserved, but what he needed. Naaman got not what he deserved, but what he needed. And in Christ, we get not what we deserve, but what we need. Now, if you need a miracle, three things. First, are you asking God for a miracle? Are we asking Second Chronicles chapter 16, in the 39th year of his reign, Asa, who was a good king, a godly guy, we're going to study him this fall, he was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. Now, I love my doctor, and I love doctors. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate them. But it says, go to the doctor but also seek help from the Lord. Do both of them. And God will sometimes directly do it, or sometimes he'll use the physicians as a tool to to do that in your life. But are we asking for that? Number two, are you doing what God told you to do? I want to give you some concrete things, and I want to ask you the question, are you doing what God told you to do? First of all, James chapter 5 says, is anyone among you sick? Are you sick? Have you done what God asked you to do? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. That's why right after the service, as soon as it's done, this door is going to open right over here for the prayer room. And the deacons of the church, the leadership of the church is going to be there. And they would just love to pray with you, whatever it is, a physical need, an emotional need, a relational need, a financial need, whatever it might be, a problem at work. Uh, But are you asking He says, is anyone sick? Call together the elders of the church. Let them anoint you with oil and pray over you. Are you doing what God told you to do? Uh, Number two, uh, have you committed your life to Christ? That's the first step in seeing God fulfill his purpose in your life. If you look on the back of your program, the bulletin, you'll see three simple steps, as simple as A, B, C, to be a follower of Jesus. And there's a little suggested prayer there. And if you've never done it, 
Have you done what he asked you to do, which is receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Then the third question. If you've committed your life to Christ, have you ever shown it publicly by being baptized? I'm always amazed at the number of people that have never taken that step that is commanded by Jesus to show publicly that you're following him by being baptized. He says in Matthew 28, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If you've never been baptized, have you, are you doing what God told you to do. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Do you know, I've been convicted recently that we make it too hard to get baptized around here. We, if, if you can't make the class uh, because of a, a schedule problem, or you got to work or whatever, that's a challenge. For some people, it's a, it's a huge hang-up to get videotaped for your testimony And, you know, I got thinking about that. I can't find anywhere in the early church where they were forced to get videotaped their their testimony. I just, I can't find it in there. I'm sure it's in one of the lost books of Corinthians or whatever, but I just just can't find it in there. And so we've just been thinking about this and thinking, you know what, Let's let's just have a Sunday where we streamline the process. So here's what I want to tell you. If you want to be baptized, maybe you want to rededicate your life. Um, somebody was talking to me after the first service. They said, you know, I was, as a child, uh, I was baptized, but I've kind of gone through some adult stuff. Uh, could I renew it like, like Kimberly and I did in the Jordan River, you know, when I was like about 40 years old or so. So baptized once when I was like 13 and another time when I was 40 years old. Maybe you want to rededicate your, yourself to that. Uh, one young girl came up to me and said she has a phobia of water. And I said, you know what? We can take care of that. We'll get you as wet as we can, but not many more than you're able to handle. And so, you know, we, we can handle that if you have a phobia of water. And I'm telling you, the, the, let's just streamline it for one Sunday, okay? So next Sunday, we're going to have regular baptisms with the video testimonies and all that at all three services. But in addition to that, if you just show up at the 11:11 service next Sunday, just show up with a change of clothes. We're going to do the sermon early, and then we're going to do a worship time. During that worship time, we're going to have pastors there that can just touch base with you to make sure you understand, you know, what it's all about. And then at the end of the 1111 service, you just come with a change of clothes, and we're going to baptize you at the end of the service. You say, Glenn, does it have to be in front of everybody? No, it doesn't. Most of the famous baptisms in the Bible had one or only two people at the baptism. So I tell you what we're going to do. Again, you just show up uh, by the end of the 11-11 service. Either come to the 11-11 service and stay afterwards or show up at the end at 12.30. And I tell you what we'll do. As soon as the 11-11 is over, the doors on the baptistry will close and then we'll have more private baptisms in the back. Uh, We'll just be back there, um, you know, doing it privately with just two or three people. If you want to have a couple of friends, that's fine. But there'll be some of us back there to witness it. And, and, and so, you know, that's all it takes is one or two witnesses. You're just as married if you get married with a thousand people or if you get married in Vegas, you know, with two. You're just as married. And the same thing is true of baptism. I mean, Paul may have only had Ananias that baptized him, may have been the only one. The Ethiopian eunuch, the other most famous baptism in the Bible, may have only had three or four people there when he was baptized. So it doesn't have to be in front of a bunch of people. So the doors will shut at 1230 and we'll just continue baptizing now in private, either in front of everybody at the end of the 11-11 or after just come to the 11-11 service or at the end of the 11-11 service next Sunday, bring a change of clothes and, and let's just, what does it say? What are you waiting for?
get up and be baptized. Now, number three, are you letting your pride stand in the way? How about for prayer for something? Are you letting your pride? Is it, it's, it's humbling to ask another person to pray for you. I know that's hard. But that door is going to open right in about two or three minutes now. That door is going to open. And there are people there that love you and would just love to pray with you, whatever it might be. Is your pride stopping you from asking for prayer? How about coming to Christ? Is your pride stopping you from committing your life to Christ? How about baptism? Is your pride stopping you? You know, I've always wondered, why did God choose getting dunked in water as a way of showing that we're following Jesus? I mean, think about it. There's a thousand ways we could have done it. Why this? And I think one of the reasons is, and the story of Naaman illustrates this. Naaman's story is a perfect illustration of why he chose baptism. It's humbling. It's embarrassing. The, the most vulnerable you ever feel is standing in front of other people soaking wet. I mean, you think I look bald now. You should see me soaking wet. It's not a pretty sight, you know. Especially the ladies are like, well, what's my hair going to look like when I come up from the water? You know, it, it's humbling. Well, let me ask you a question. What are you waiting for? Are you letting your pride stand in the way? Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? But he only does it if we ask, ask him, if we do what he says, and if we humble ourselves. Let's stand for the closing benediction. And we're going to use what's become kind of our theme benediction for this series. It's Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. It's kind of been our benediction theme uh, throughout this series. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and all God's family said. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.